This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an ironclad original presented by Sig Sauer. My guest today is Lieutenant John Norris. He is a retired California fish and wildlife game warden and the author of War in the Woods and Hidden War. Uh, fantastic reads. You can find out more about him at johnnorris.com. That'll take you to all the projects he is currently involved in and including these knives from V Knives right here. So love this blade. This thing is sweet. So uh, enjoy the podcast. And if you do, be sure and leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts on Spotify, Apple, or on YouTube. So without further ado, John Norris. What's what's up with the wolves up there in uh, in Montana these days? What's, oh, brother, uh, what's they, a little they, bit about that background? They are very, very prolific. You know, we're, okay. we're hunting them now as residents and non-residents on, uh, you know, non-draw tags over the counter <clears throat> regulated very carefully. Um, and we're seeing them, we're seeing them everywhere. So, wow. you know, and ironically where I'm hunting, um, which is a very, very dark remote area, you know, uh, North of us here between here and Canada, um, I'm seeing a lot of them, but I'm still seeing moose and I'm still seeing elk and I'm still seeing okay. black bear and I'm still seeing white tailed deer. And, okay. uh, because they're having a little bit of hunting pressure for the conservation model, things are better. They're a lot better. Okay. Now, before we opened up that hunt, probably been four or five years now, we were having, you know, excessive elk herds hammered. Uh, my hot spot, white tail spots were just absolutely, I mean, denuded. Um, really? they were, they were a little too, you know, a little too repressive because they just weren't in check. So, uh, so we're starting to see that balance because of a good conservation hunting model and it's encouraging. Now I'm seeing everything on the cameras again and in the woods. It's nice. cool. Yeah. Nice. Now, did they put in the, uh, uh, I keep meaning to research this more thoroughly because I do get asked about it. And my answer is always, hey, I need to do a little more more research. I haven't had time to you know, to dive into it as much as I would like because I am fascinated by it. So when they reintroduce the wolf, do they reintroduce the wrong type of wolf from a different area or something like that? I heard rumors about that. Like, what did they do when they reintroduced wolves in, uh, in and did they do it in Montana or were there other states? That they, there, there were a lot of other states. Yeah. They've, they've always been here in Montana. So it wasn't really a reintroduction of a wrong species okay. or anything. It was just, they went unchecked. They continued to go unchecked. Um, you know, some of the problems we've had, like we talked a little bit about when you were on our Thane Green Line podcast, the, the grizzly, you know, the inland grizzly was under that same type of deal. There just wasn't any regulation. There wasn't any monitoring and, you know, Glacier National Park, that's a stone's throw from some of our mutual friends. Um, all those problem bears are dropped right here in the yak and the cabinets where I'm at. And as a result, we're having a lot of, you know, negative interactions with grizzlies that can't be hunted. Um, that same problem was going on with wolves until they opened up that, that season. And now yeah. we're just, we're just not having that problem. We're not, you know, you know, seeing them coming into cattle as much and, you know, elk herds in the open as much just because there is that pressure. Um, some of the other States that are reintroducing them, um, my old home state, and I know you spent a lot of time in the golden state as well. Yeah, yeah. We've got some timber wolves up on that Northern border coming in and no we're watching kidding. really careful. And, you know, um, that's, that's going to be a precarious situation. We hope those wolves, you know, do okay. But at the same time with depredation issues and they're going to be a protected species, how's that going to be in the conservation balance? It's going to be a, it's going to be a challenge for sure. Interesting. So th those are getting reintroduced in other states and coming into California or is California reintroducing those? Well, they got reintroduced and they drifted into California off that northern border. They started coming off the Washington-Oregon border and peppering in and, and now we're kind of monitoring <laughs> Wow. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, kind of a small pack and they're all named and we're seeing them on cameras and things like that. So I've got a lot of old friends and old allied agency colleagues kind of keeping me in the loop on that. And I'm in California a lot still, obviously for everything from Hidmore and, you know, cannabis cartel enforcement business and desert wow. racing now that I'm doing and still I saw that. very connected to California. I can't get it out of my blood on those wildlife okay. issues because it's such a diverse state. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Are there, are any of those ones that were reintroduced, are they tagged in that sort of thing and for to to study and figure out where they're where they're moving and that sort of thing? Or did someone just or did we just reintroduce them and then all of a sudden they just went and off you know unchecked essentially? Yeah, many of them are tagged. Uh, many of okay. them are, you know, GPS tracked as well. Um, and they're tagged and identified. So that'll be the long-term study to see how these states that haven't had wolves in the past, um, especially a you know, a very urbanized state like Cali. 
is going to be uh, super interesting to see how that all fares. So, um, oh, yeah. and it's, it's all happening around my colleagues, still operational in fish and wildlife as conservation officers, even our spec op Mets, met guys. A lot of them reside up there, you know, right where yeah. these wolves are dropping in. So our canine guys are watching it closely and it's, it's an exciting time. It's an exciting oh, time man. to see what happens with those critters. Yeah, that's wild. That's wild. So yeah, I got both your books here. I recommend them to people all the time. Oh, I appreciate uh, that. And yeah. yeah, these are, these are awesome because they're more than just like, you know, what, what you did, you know, right. it's an education and, uh, and yeah, I love both of, both of these books, War in the Woods and, and Hidden War. You did a fantastic job with, uh, with both of these, but, uh, taking it back a little bit, when did you know you were going to go into, uh, to become a warden to, to, to take a step into that, that line of work? Was that always something that you, uh, wanted to do growing up because I know you grew up outdoors and you grew up in uh, in in California and and kind of moved into to this line of work with a with a solid foundation already built. So um, when did you decide you're going to make that that leap and and do that for a uh, as a profession? Yeah, yeah, brother. Unlike a lot of my colleagues that you know grew up hunting and fishing, which I did as well. Um, came from a long line granddad, you know, being career Navy, military, my dad, military as well. And growing up kind of in states like Montana and Oregon and California, it was always in our blood, you know, respect the outdoors, protect your wildlife, waterlands, uh, you know, and, and uh, wildlands and waterways. But at the same time, um, live the conservation ethos, you know, always harvest and consume and utilize every part, respect the animal you take, the fish you catch whatever the case may be. But unlike my colleagues, I never met a game warden in all those years from nine years old when I got my hunter education certification with dad's help, you know, broke my first clay with a 20 gauge and then went waterfowl hunt and got my first cinnamon teal with ham all the way until I was in college. I never met a freaking game warden in the woods. And that's the only reason I did not target that career earlier on. So I was in an engineering program, an impacted program at San Jose State in the Silicon Valley, where I'm from, and also about to join up an ROTC program for special forces through college, going to the military. And on winter break between semesters of my first semester in engineering school, a game warden contacted me and one of my best friends, one of my Baja racing buddies, actually, 13 miles in the backcountry in the middle of December dumb college kids with the wrong equipment, soaking wet. And we kind of had a, a camp and actually an illegal campfire going uh, at this horse camp. Game warden comes in in his four by four out of nowhere off this steep hill, no backup by himself, steel horse he rides. And he's checking us thinking we're poaching black deer, you know, out of season in prime rut because that state park, Henry Co. has those big deer in it. He finds out we're not poaching. We're just out backpacking, loving the outdoors, being dumb kids. But when I realized he wasn't a park ranger and he was a game warden, what is that? And then I bent his ear. I kept him there for two hours. And awesome. I mean, I just lost my mind. And, you know, Jeff, my, my uh, longtime partner, just looked at me and goes, dude, what's with you? You look different. I go, you know what? I got to do some thinking on this hike. And we had five days in the woods, Jack. And when I get out, I got to make a big decision. And I did. I literally changed my major to criminal justice. Um, I started the application hiring process, you know, early on because in the early 90s as a white male without military preference points, very, very hard to get into a game warden position because there were so few slots. And I was lucky enough to score high enough to get in and, and through a two-year process as I was finishing undergraduate work before my, my graduate work, um, I got the call. And I was in the academy in 1992 at Napa Valley College and uh, a, a running, running with it and, uh, you know, starting in Riverside County, um, not too, and San Diego County, not too far from yeah. where you did a lot of work yeah. with the teams um, and had a great three years in Southern California because I was like drinking through a fire hose. I mean, I bet, no. I bet. <laughs> when, when did you first find out that, Hey, it wasn't all what, um, or maybe you did in that com initial conversation, but when did you find out that, Hey, there's a little more of, of the, uh, not the law enforcement as far as checking tags and making that sort of thing, but as far as, hey, there are some serious people out here uh, doing the marijuana grows, protecting those crops. Uh, there's some serious crimes going out here that I'm going to be involved with uh, figuring out where, where my place is as, as a warden dealing with these sorts of things, uh, protecting the environment, protecting these animals, uh, you know, whatever it might be. When did you find out that, uh, is that in the academy or did you know it before going in? Like, when did you know there was going to be so much of a, uh, you know, I don't know what the right word is, but a law enforcement tact to what you were going to be doing. Yeah, the, the diversity of what we did on what I call the traditional role was pretty, you know, ingrained in the academy. And in the academy, we had some really hardcore tactical officers, military veterans, Vietnam vets, uh, you know, Greg Orr, who his call sign is rock in both my books. 
Um, the battle experience he has around what you and I have experienced domestically and abroad uh, was intense, especially what he saw in Vietnam, uh, especially losing a special forces brother from an A-team um, that's still MIA. Um, so when he comes into being a game warden from a life of military special operations and then, you know, uh, standard law enforcement, he was hard in a yeah. good way, you know, um, doing felony car stops, knowing we're going to go up against spotlighters that are not only poaching animals, but where I'm at in Riverside County, it's probably gangbangers coming over with assault weapons and they've done drive-bys. Now they're just out, you know, pleasure killing for lack of a better term. Huh. Um, and those were the type of crimes that I had to get embedded uh, and 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 really understand and get my tactics solid, even as a you know early twenties pup starting my career to deal with that when I went to Riverside. In addition to all the fishing and the streambed alteration, uh, you know everything from falconers and you know inspecting mews for for you know guys that fly falcons and wow. uh, teaching hunter education to kids. Uh, you know the conservation. This is you. I know that's near and dear to you with your kids, like we talked about. And you know one of the most pleasurable parts of my career was that aspect. But that was the traditional stuff that I signed up for, loved. Couldn't look back, had no you know regrets or reservations, and that's what I wanted to do. And the first 10 to 12 years of my career, that's what I focused on. The whole cartel, trespass grow, you know, embedded eco-terrorism in America, none of that was really known to us at the time. Um, the cartels were just starting to come across the border on the San Diego side and starting to embed in our national forest, like the Cleveland National Forest, mm -hmm. Anza Borrego Park that you're familiar with in mm -hmm. San Diego County. That was all starting in the mid, I'm going to say early to mid 80s. So they hadn't really been embedded in America that long. Um, U.S. Forest Service was working with them a little bit. Um, some of the military National Guard teams were helping from a LPOP or a observation point only at the time. Um, but it was really when I got back up to Silicon Valley, when I took that transfer and it promoted to be a lieutenant in 2005, right before that in 04, and the first chapter of the first book, War in the Woods, really goes into this, that... I discovered my first, you know, trespass cartel grow in an area that was so sensitive environmentally. It was, it was the perfect storm for the worst type of situation. And um, just to abbreviate that and up, you know, go too far into the book for, for times, uh, you know, issues. Um, good friend of mine that was a wildlife biologist that we all grew up with, <clears throat> excuse me, working on his master's thesis on steelhead trout, red-legged, yellow-legged frog, all these threatened and endangered species, literally in the headwaters of Coyote Creek that Henry Coast State Park, where I met that game warden, you know, back in college, the headwaters feed that. And that is one of the last steelhead migrating streams that goes all the way to the Pacific Ocean out of the South San Francisco Bay. That's how sensitive this waterway is. Um, and the fish that migrate and everything he was studying for this five-year study. And about year three in 2004, I get a call and a GI codenamed in the first book um, says, John, this is some crazy, man. Uh, one of my streams is flowing great. It's April. We have all this winter runoff, fish, fry, uh, frogs, everything's good. But I got a totally dry stream on one end, all this plastic and junky debris in a dry stream, and everything's dead. And that's, wow. uh, you know, oh, crap. What does that mean? And so from a traditional standpoint, I'm thinking, is a cattleman diverting water for a cattle operation? Is it an agricultural water diversion? That's typically the stream at alteration cases, Jack, that we would see on the traditional side. So I put him in the truck, take him to the top of the mountain. We dive deep. Just into you, without a, without a partner, just you and him? Just me and him. That's okay. it. Yeah. In those days, you know, um, if we had a ride along that was savvy and we weren't going into anything that we, you know, um, kind of had a, a, a threat matrix workup like we would operationally now, it didn't have any, any clues whatsoever that it would be anything but a typical sedate water diversion. So I throw him in the truck. We go and with that, what do you have on you? Like without being prepared ahead of time, like knowing, hey, we're going into this grow. What do you have on you? What is it just a sidearm or do you have a rifle in the in the truck as well? What are you carrying at this point? Yeah, that that was before we had an official battle rifle, which I'll talk about with you being another uh, another firearms guy like myself. Um, we were carrying a hodgepodge of stuff as long as we could qualify, get them armor inspected. And I ran an M4. Um, I run an M4 uh, with a Trigicon. ACOG on it. Uh, I ran, you know, with uh, bonded rounds and the 5.56, knowing that I was going into very brushy terrain and having, you know, hunted all my life with bigger calibers and knowing how these bullets perform, um, I could kind of pick my ammo at the time. So that was cool. I had the M4. I had my Glock duty pistol, Glock 22, 40 calibers, what we were issued at the time. And, you know, my partner, GI, who I'm going in with, very savvy and proficient with weapons. Fieldcraft is top notch, second to none in the woods. 
a lot of hunting time, but he's an unarmed civilian and I can't really have him armed on an operation. So he's a very good asset, but doesn't have a firearm. And okay. we're going to go in here. I've got a radio. I've got a cell phone. But of course, we dive into a canyon. There's no radio coverage. There's no cell service. And we're wow. going straight down a mountain about a thousand feet. And then we get into the canyon. It's like a pristine Grand Canyon of waterway. And it's bone dry. And there's the water diversion where they, the cartel guys have built up a check dam. They've got a water pipe going down a dry creek. And it's kind of follow the rabbit hole. You know, what are you going to find at the end of the end of the pipe? And sure enough, as we stalked carefully and concealed down through that canyon, we started to see, you know, 18 to 24 inch tall marijuana plants on both sides of the creek, all the bank vegetation gone, which is a big environmental problem. Uh, then we started to see, you know, camouflaged encampments and hooches and a kitchen and a cooking area, big bags of fertilizer. Had no idea at the time these EPA banned poisons that we started to learn about much later in the game. They were all in there, the carbofuran, the metaphos. Uh, the nerve agent, you know, that's banned from use in America for any agriculture. Uh, cartels have to smuggle it through the border infiltration or from the oceans in Pangas, you know, um, get it in Tijuana. And then we run into two growers and they're in OD green BDUs and they've got their, you know, their cartel monikers uh, embedded and, you know, kind of woven into their belt buckles and uh, they're the patron saint stuff I talk about in Hidden War and, you know, that whole, you know, kind of ideology of what type of culture that uh, encourages as far as environmental destruction and drug crimes and human trafficking. And they've got AKs and they've got machetes. And Jack, no joke, I, you know, I think about all the operations you've done in your career and all the ones I've done on my side of the world. And I have never seen guys that were so protected knowing no one was in the area yet so situationally aware. Wow. I mean, their field craft was top notch. They would, they would be a two man unit. And as they were tending their plants, they would whisper and not talk. One would always, every couple minutes, look over the shoulder and check the six o'clock, check the tail gunner, like a tail gunner on a, on a stack, like we would run. And whoever was like chopping plants or tending a water hose, the other one would kind of sit back and just have that situational awareness and be like a cover, a cover guy. Wow. And there's no, so when you run into these first two guys, are you like coming around, like come behind a tree and you're like, and you like steering the headlights, you both see each other. No. Or do you see them from a ways <laughs> off or you get the binos out and you're like, like, what was that situation yeah. like? Thankfully it wasn't the, it wasn't the former man. Cause if we had, <laughs> if we had gone eye to eye and uh -huh. knowing not knowing what, you know, not knowing what I would know later in that situation, it was going to be a gunfight for sure. Did you, and you're on foot, do you have your M4 with you or do you leave that in the car? Oh no, the M4, as soon as that. I dive out of it, and as soon as I lose sight of the truck, the rifle goes with me, you know, on, okay. on any, and that was before nice. any special operations unit. It's just how we trained our guys and okay. our firearms training was really state of the art. You know, it was keeping up with the best law enforcement. We were getting a lot of stuff back from the sandbox from you guys on the military side, especially special forces we were training with independently. Um, I had a, I got a lot of training in Southern California when I was down with Forest Service, starting my career with the Third Special Forces Group. You know, which was freaking fantastic. I got to jump in with that opportunity, and and that doesn't normally happen. So it was starting early, and then fast forward to this Silicon Valley drop into this canyon. Um, we are just hugging the bank, just kind of using field craft like we're stalking animals, going in real quiet, doing slow peaks, moving slow, okay. and. When we got to see them and they had their backs to us and were kind of above us a little bit, but we were in a cut bank in the creek below them, we hugged the bank, we held tight, you know, we were pieing out real careful. I always carry a tiny pocket pair of binoculars. We love those little Leica, those eight by twenties or those 10 by 22s. It's something I bought for the entire Met team when we formed up the unit because those little binos you can, you know, put up so slowly mm. without being a target indicator, very little movement and peek out and you can really see details. And sure enough, that's when I saw what they were doing. And they were maybe at the time, 50 yards away. They were not far. And we just had to hold position as they started to work our way. And I was waiting for that, you know, here we go moment, ready to go. And just not the situation I wanted to happen with an unarmed civilian with me, no radio coverage. This was going to be a hard one to explain for sure. If I went loud and they got to about 15 yards and they tended some plants very, very close to us. I mean, it was, it was crazy. And then they made that hook and drifted out of the canyon and doubled back. Whoa. So that was an eye opener. And once we got them out <laughs> of the area, I looked at DI and, and Jack, I just went, all right, man, we got the location marked. We got a ping. Let's get out of here. We kind of did a, a quiet bounding overwatch uphill and out, got to the truck and just had that processing moment when I got to coverage. And then I 
what's next, man? What does the game warden do in a situation like that? I just saw what I would later learn is the biggest environmental criminal we have in California and now in 25 other states for just the cannabis side of things. Um, had no idea they were involved in running human trafficking operations all over the country like they do now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you look at the synthetic fentanyl killing so many people from dirty labs mm-hmm. back east. Um, that's all generated by these same cartel groups. It's just a different division of work they do in their business model. Um, the prescription drug, the opiates, the gun running, um, the, the children, sex trafficking, it's all embedded. So we were actually stumbling onto a level of environmental criminal that affected the country on a, a deeper level beyond just wildlife, but we didn't know any of that yet. So yeah. that was the first exposure. And then bringing in a task force of, of uh, drug officers that, you know, focus on that. And now I'm going to just be the advisor because I've never done this. That was the technically the first operation I went on where we did uh, an apprehension attempt, a full eradication of a grow. And then unfortunately, because it wasn't SOPs for the non-conservation guys on the team to actually clean that mess up environmentally and bring the waterway back, uh, we didn't reclimate the grow site, but it was sure an eye opener. And that that started the direction long-windedly of where I would go next into building Met eventually and getting the right guys and where we're at now. That's incredible. So you left that, I mean, you left that behind, uh, and in the future you'd go in and you'd clean that site all the way up after you, if you apprehended somebody, got them out of there, took the pictures, did the evidence, did all that sort of thing to build the case. Then right after you did that, would, would you then start getting that site back and trying to, uh, uh, limit some of that environmental damage? Yeah. Unfortunately, what we had to do is we went and raided it about three weeks after we got all the right people together. And the agencies figured out what they wanted to do with it, with the the, the task force. And uh, we guided them into the canyon. We got eyes on the two suspects. Actually, it was the same two guys that GI and, GI and I had seen before. And, um, you know, there was a way that had we used our field craft and our tactics, we could have very easily caught them, but there was no emphasis on catching them at the time. So there was a call out from a long distance from cover and there was a run. Wow. And uh, a couple of us wanted to pursue and three of us did, um, both of us from Fish and Wildlife and then a sheriff's deputy that was a sniper on the sheriff's team, a very adept one, uh, you know, um, very uh, skilled martial artist, um, Craig Dybert, codenamed Snake in the first book. He and I bonded on that mission. And even though that mission was not run the way I would later want to run missions environmentally or to ac- actually apprehend these guys and get a deterrence value to catching these guys, um, the bond uh, Snake and I developed working together that day and then working with his agency's MET team, the Sheriff's Department out of Santa Clara County, the Silicon Valley-based group, that was the next step. And man, did they run hot and did we run together as equals? Did we develop tactics for apprehending before canines? Um, they actually got on board with doing environmental reclamation. So it was with about a year after that raid that they, on their time and dime, and we on the fish and game side, combined forces and went in and cleaned up that site. And we took out all the poisons. We took out all the trash. We took out all the encampments, took out the water diversion, all this, you know, non-glamorous, very laborious, dirty work that actually realistically has the biggest impact overall um, because it sure helps for, you know, our water quality and getting vegetation back and and, uh, stopping animals from being poisoned. But then at the same time, it actually deters these cartel guys from coming back to that area because all their infrastructure is gone. And it's already on law enforcement's radar. Um, And I was able to confirm that theory. We were seeing that in the field as I did more and more of these operations down the road uh, with the sheriff's office. But we got to debrief, like I talk about in chapter four of Hidden War. I was involved in a pretty sensitive debrief of a top-level plaza boss in the cartels that was popped on a methamphetamine cook in the off-season because they're cooking meth in the winter when they can't grow tainted weed in the summer. And this guy was very forthright. Um, and sitting in with DEA and the guys from the sheriff's office and multiple interpreters to kind of be able to ask him open-ended questions on what we suspected. And he validated everything we had suspected. He said, you're right. I oversee a hundred grows in California. And if law enforcement goes in and raids them and you guys just leave, he goes, cause you don't really catch that many people. At least a lot of teams don't, and you never touch or take our stuff. You don't clean up the pipe. I mean, all we got to do is wait a year or two, knowing how busy you guys are and how many grows you don't get. And we're just going to put a crew in there and test it. Mm. And if we lose it, we lose it. But if we don't lose it, we made 11 to $20 million profit on tainted in, weed. In the military, we call those guys, new guys, new guys, hey, new guy, yeah. go, go back, <laughs> go back down right? that Canyon there and stay there for a few days and see what happens. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Hey, let, did you let, find that uh, as your tactics evolved and you started to um, to to grow as a team and get more effective and efficient as a, as a team and with interagency coordination and all the rest of it, uh, did you find that, uh, for lack of a better term, the enemy um, adapted as well? Did they put up um, uh, lookout posts and sniper positions and things like that where they could see you come in early early warning? I know they had. They've had different sorts of uh, like IEDs with with uh, what do you call the toe poppers and things like that yep. dating dating way back um, the punji stakes like all that stuff for for a long time. But uh, did their tactics start to evolve based on what you did? Just kind of like it does downrange with the enemy um, as far as particularly as far as early warning and getting people up in uh, higher uh, higher positions, getting that high ground to see if you're uh, picking out avenues of approach that you guys would be most likely to take in, so they could get that early warning going. Very much so. You just hit it on the head, brother. We started to see that when we really got a lot better at apprehending bad guys. Rather, we were using light running teams and, you know, using teams that had an apprehension mentality and a focus. Um, we were, we were you know, regimented that way from my organization. The sheriffs that I just mentioned were, were very adamant. And they were also, you know, they were also the top snipers on their cert units. So these guys wanted to hunt bad guys the right way. And they all hunted and fished as conservationists, even though they weren't game wardens. They were just like you and I. So we got really proficient at stalking real close to these guys and, and getting them down. Um, and certainly, you know, with everything from L-shaped ambushes and other small unit tactics that you're familiar with and that I don't go into too much detail for OPSEC reasons, um, we got really good at it. And then when we formed the MET team and I was given the green light in 2013 to build a pilot program for our agency, and we had Canine Phoebe that you've heard about and read about, mm -hmm. and we had Brian Boyd, her amazing handler, um, and other dogs coming on that Brian and Phoebe were kind of the template to kind of mirror for that particular type of uh, operation in those conditions. The dogs were getting so good and the teams were getting so good that we were seeing punji pits for the first time, Vietnam era punji yes. pits in national parks. So Whiskey Town National Park, 200 yards from a grow on a main public hiking trail, covered with a tarp, leaf litter all over it, uh, a little- Where's that park? Which, where's that whiskey- Whiskey Town is up in Shasta County. Okay. Yeah. And that Got was the first one. That was the first uh, punji pit we saw. And then wow. we saw six or seven others scattered Jeez. all over the state on, on numerous different operations on state, federal, uh, local, private land, you name it. But that thing was set up just to be an anti-personnel hindrance before you even got to a grow site. And it had a backpack over it like a decoy. So any person oh, or man. any cop or any operator would clear the backpack for any type of explosive, any type of weapon, et cetera, and step right into the punji pit. Oh. And unlike Vietnam that you and I are familiar with where it was it was human feces on, you know, mm -hmm. the sharpened bamboo stakes yeah. that my relatives, you know, encountered when they were fighting in Vietnam um, and the, the Viet Cong punji pits, they just put the carbofuran, the pink wow. death as they call it, the banned poisons, they dip that stuff on, in these sticks. And that stuff is nasty, you know, from the nerve agent, the anticoagulant uh, element of that chemical. And when we started to see those and we started to see LPOP or what, you know, listening post observation post overwatch posts for either scouts. And we'd see, you know, we'd see photos on cell phones that we'd capture later that they had sniper rifles on overwatch. They were employing those type of tactics. And there were so many teams walking into this that had no idea because we just didn't have the intel. Um, but we had seen enough of it and my bosses and administrators had seen enough of it, of what we were encountering. And at that point we had had three or four gunfights, uh, you know, in 2005, like I go into both books, my partner warden was shot through both legs by an AK 47 armed grower, a Zeta gunman, you know, from that organization up there to defend a grow during harvest time. And this was, you know, an eyesight of Google and eBay and Cisco and Facebook headquarters, not the typical place, Jack, you would think of, you know, cartel <laughs> trained gunman protecting a, a you know, multi-million dollar cash crop, but there it was. Um, snares. I thought those weapons hooks. were illegal in California. How, how did they get, how did they uh, possibly get them if it was illegal? Yeah. Funny. How does that work? <laughs> yeah. How did the bad guys get those? That's yeah. Interesting. It's interesting. We, we lock they it up. Somehow the the bad, sometimes the bad guys just always have guns with gun control. Go figure, they right? Yeah. So you can understand the frustration we have on the 2A issue. And I, I know you yeah. and I fight you know, staunchly on both our sides on that. And that's another example of all the guns we were finding, you know, I mean, by the time I retired, I look at the stats and some of them, they're in the letter jacket in hidden war, but you know, we were at 3 million, 3 wow. million poison, toxically tainted cannabis plants that we seized and destroyed. 
that had they made it out of the woods, they would have been all over the country on the black market. Kids that experiment with cannabis, which is everywhere, would have been ingesting this stuff on the black market, having no idea the poisons they were ingesting. Medical patients, uh, you know, the CBD that in the flower or not the flower, but the leaves that's used for so many veterans and, you know, different issues related to pain relief and, uh, you know, anti-inflammatory, all that stuff is tainted if it comes from these sites. And uh, we, we had no idea. So the, the booby traps were just everywhere. They were everywhere. Um, uh, poppers, like you said, noisemakers, a uh, lot of cans on monofilament and okay. mixed in with really dry cuts of manzanita limbs and, and branches. So that even if you hit that tripwire a little bit, you're going to make a little bit of noise. And, 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 you know, I mean, as snipers, one of the biggest thing in field craft training, that was the hardest part of sniper school for me, yeah, for me too. Right? And, and I'm sure for you is deploying yeah, yeah. and not getting, not getting burned by our instructors for making a movement the wrong way or making noise somewhere. And brother, these guys are good. You know, my hat's off to you talk about an enemy you're fighting at the highest level because they're living out there six to eight months a year. They have escape trails. They know every part of their trail. They're in great shape. They've been running around in off camber, you know, pothole ridden, brushy vegetation conditions and knowing every little hidey hole to get around to evade and escape. And it's dry as heck in the summer. So everything, one little oak leaf on a, on a bare yeah. trail, it's crunch if we hit it. Oh yeah. And those guys know every bird that should be sounding off. They know the sound of the Creek. They know when stuff's coming. Um, so it, it made for a very challenging stock and a very challenging hunt. Um, but, but one that, you know, again, you got to dive into and someone's got to be doing it because this is the environmental crime of this century. It truly is. Yeah. It's so incredible. And so what did you see after you apprehended some of these guys, after you started apprehending some of these guys, did you stay with it and follow the cases all the way through to uh, fruition, whether they were uh, let go, whether they served a little bit of time, whether there was some of uh, it, like what happened? Uh, is, was there some sort of a pattern that you saw or that uh, you saw California could have done better or what, what happened after you do your part and you hand them off to that next level of, uh, of the justice system? Yeah, it, it really depended on the phase where we were at when we were arresting guys way back in 05, 06, 07, excuse me, with the sheriff's office. We weren't quite under the sanctuary state mentality of California. That policy really hadn't been embedded statewide. There was county by county uh, things mm -hmm. popping up. There was certainly the, the politics of sheriffs getting reelected and having a certain constituent base that might dictate how we were going to deal with, quote unquote, Latin suspects. Okay. Um, you know, and because these trespass growers are 95% cartel Latins from Mexico and embedded, they are not citizens. Um, and <clears throat> the... The discussion of, well, are you guys anti-Latin? Are you anti-immigration? What's the story? And we're not any of that. I mean, it's not even an immigration issue whatsoever. It's really a public safety in an Amer within American borders and environmental crime prevention in American borders against deportable felons. And the guys we're going up against isn't an immigration, isn't a group of immigrants or a family that don't have citizenship yet that are just trying to make a better life for themselves and their family. These are deportable felons on international watch lists that have murder, they have rape, they have narcotics trafficking, gun running history already in the books. They've maybe served time, maybe they've just been on an international wanted list in Mexico, maybe bouncing all over the world. Some of those gunmen that we were running across and some of the gunmen that were actually coming back to take out hits on officers that had hindered their operations had passports, you know, from France. Um, they were wow. floating all over the world. I mean, literally, no exaggeration, they were almost synonymous with some of your excellent storytelling that, you know, James Reese is encountering through all your great books that I've been privileged to read. So, but it was it was truly happening. Um, so when we're targeting these deportable felons and all of a sudden we're told, you know, toward the middle of my Met tenure, and I, and I go into this in the book because this one we made sure to be honest, you know, it came out after I retired. And uh, when I get into the couple last chapters of Hidden War, the last gunfight we were all involved in while I was still running the team was in the summer of 2017, chapter nine, Sierra Azul, literally about, you know, 10 years after my partner had been shot on the Santa Clara County side of Sierra Azul open space district. Now we're on the Santa Cruz County side because since we started regulating cannabis in California in 2016, so many agencies said, hey, we're not going to chase cartels on public lands. Why are we going to bother? Why are we going to risk the damage to ourselves getting in gunfights when no jury's going to convict these guys with regulated cannabis now? And they're not going to get deported anyway. It's a sanctuary state. They're going to be released. Well, we weren't having that. 
you know, we have the environmental crime component. And when you start using fish and wildlife code, environmental crimes, you take those watered down misdemeanors to felonies, you get enhanced misdemeanors. So we had, we still had a crucible that could be effective. Um, but we were told don't work with ice, don't work with border patrol, don't work with Homeland security, literally from the governor's office all the way down on these cartel cases. When I'm federally deputized, Jack, as well as being a state, you know, badge carrying game warden, and under our policy, it was straight up, wait a minute, under policy, of course, we're going to work with another federal agent. We're here to protect America. We're all sworn under the same oath. doesn't matter what our you know, forte is. And that actually happened in that case after getting in a gunfight with a gunman coming down on us in the kitchen. Um, he survived. None of us got hurt or hit. Um, Brian's second dog did a fantastic job of redirecting that guy's pistol with a dog bite at just the right time. And uh, we were told... And my administration was so frustrated that they had to call me. I was actually up in Montana, kind of on a break from that mission, sorting my head out in the yak in one of my spots. And I get the call from my captain and she straight up, she goes, I cannot believe I got to tell you this, but that suspect that's going to come out of the hospital any day, we can't have any contact with the feds on, on information on this guy, blah, 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 blah. You can imagine how that went over with the team. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that guy was released. He never made his, uh, his arraignment date. And I'm sure he went back to another grow site or to another meth cook or to a human trafficking ring, whatever he was doing in the organization because he was embedded in everything. So to your point, yes, we do get frustrated. There are certain states that are doing it right, some that are not. Um, the one thing we just keep harping on is just tell the story. You know, yeah. I mean, Americans need to know what's going on. And uh, you know, after your amazing career for you to put this, you know, into writing now and, and fictionalize what's, what's truly happening in so many levels. Um, and for me to be able to tell the story on the environmental public safety front domestically and honestly, I think is the best thing we can do at this point and just hope Americans see the value of, uh, you know, protecting our country the right way and protecting those beautiful wildlife resources you and I both love near and dear. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's why this is so, so important and why I recommend these books all the time, not just because we're friends, but because there's nothing really else out there like it. There's nobody like you out there that's writing about these things, that's doing uh, different visual uh, series and things like that out there to tell this story. Because it's not just when someone sees the initial look, they think, oh, marijuana, oh, it's going to be legal. Oh, why do they, you know, repressive government just keeping me from smoking my weed type thing. <laughs> right, that's right. not it. Like that, the environmental crimes and catastrophe that is that is attached to these illegal grows, that's the story. And, and it's for, for me, when I think about the, the contradictions and uh, the hypocrisy behind people who just base their opinions on a single tweet from someone who also hasn't done the requisite, uh, you know, spent the time in pages of books or, or actually studying these issues to, to just all of a sudden think that, Hey, you're bad. Hunting is bad. Uh, I want to smoke my weed. Uh, that's it. Like that's, that's their, their thing. Well, you know, what's really happening here is these illegal grows are just decimating wildlife. And in the books, you have the pictures, you have the mountain lion there, the same people that don't want to regulate mountain lion hunting in California that turn a blind eye to the mountain lions that just get taken out, uh, of that state without, right any sort of a, uh, w- without any sort of the benefits economically coming to the, to, to that state, um, uh, from, uh, from regulated hunting. Um, they're, they're, so they're against that, but they're for, they're not supporting you and they're not supporting, uh, uh, government agencies going in and taking care of these environmental disasters out there that are poisoning the same animals out there and exactly. with no, thought to, is it a kid? Is it a, is it a baby? Is it, you know, uh, is, is it a female? Is it male? And none of that. They're just all drinking this water and dying. And all that water is going right into these other rivers, just decimating steelhead. Uh, and it's just, it's crazy that people don't put the, the time in. That's why I recommend these books so much to everybody. Cause you do such a good job of explaining that on the environmental side of the house. No, brother. I really appreciate the support. Um, and you know, I have a hardcore conservationist in you on the other side, man, and all the stuff we've done since we met. And I'm, I'm very grateful. Um, and I like, you know, I, I, I mentioned recently on a post when I got a, cause I'm holding up one of my favorites right here. Yay, nice. Yeah, there, there's, there's a new one. Oh yeah. And, uh, and Savage Sun to, to get to review it with you and, and kind of go over the archery and the conservation side of it was, was not only a real privilege and honor, it was just spot on. Um, and when you care so much about 
you know, hunting as a love for the animal and not a, a murdering of the animal and a harvest of the animal and helping wildlife overall by being that dedicated archer, being that dedicated rifleman and being a humane hunter, um, there's just nothing better. And it's doing so much for wildlife. And yet we're having, like you just said perfectly, this cartel invasion and some states actually sanctioning this invasion for the sake of politics, for the sake of votes. Um, it's just, it's inhumane. It's so un-American. And, you know, when we talk about the cannabis side of things from the industry, I'm going to take the legitimate cannabis industry as an example. I'm going to talk about uh, tier one growers in the Emerald Triangle in Northern California that know our team, that I've done work with, that were actually came to grower meetings where they were going to come out of the dark. They've been in the black market for 20, 30 years. They've been doing a strictly cash business, you know, the whole smuggling ring. They're not, in, you know, they're not poisoning anything. They're very environmentally conscious. They, you know, conserve their water. They don't use pesticides. They have the most organic, high dollar, quote unquote, cannabis that asphyxiandos like. They get wind of this and they're willing to come out of the dark and we're about to regulate in 2016. And I'm on a panel in a battle dress uniform putting a PowerPoint up and they're like, whoa, what's he doing here? He's going to work it's us. a trap. It's a trap. I've got, I know I have surveillance on, you know, in the, in the parking lot. And I'm just like, Hey guys, time out. Give me 20 minutes. I'm not here to arrest anybody. This is an education outreach event on behalf of California Department of Fish and Wildlife and all these regulatory agencies that we're going to try to step into the new world of cannabis regulation and try to make some environmental sense of it. So it doesn't become a complete shit show. And I put up the PowerPoint with a lot of those pictures you see in hidden war some more graphic, a little more in depth. And I'm getting tears from some of the women. I'm getting guys pissed off and standing up. And these are, you know, multi-million dollar previously black market growers that are not about that. Yeah. And when I'm leaving and going to my truck with my canine and packing up all my outreach supplies and throwing it in the patrol cruiser, and they're running to my truck, handing me business cards going, Hey, Lieutenant, that's bullshit. We're not about that. We want to do it right. We had no idea the depth of what these cartels are doing. We, we are sort of aware of them. Here's my card. I have a ton of workers. You need to re reclimate, clean up a grow site, free labor, whatever. I'll send my guys anywhere. I mean, that was surreal, Jack, to see yeah. that. And it was, also, it was also one of the highlights of my career because I think we finally unified where we were so diversified. You know, and I look at this you know, this uh, diversification and this, this polarization between the left and the right in America right now, and just how heartbreaking it is, the, the state of affairs in our great nation. But I saw that as a tail end career swan song to kind of bring people together and actually get them on our side. Um, so we have the legitimate cannabis industry and still do on our side, not only in California, but other states that are trying to regulate, um, terming us the earth warriors, kind of different term, you know, for a tactical unit, but I'll take it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but hey, it's it's like allies you had overseas that you had to foster and build and, and embed with, you know, for the sake of everybody worldwide, not just America. And I, I look at that that uh, you know that connection, you know, that parallel, and I realize that's the only way we're going to make a dent on this thing is having the legitimate cannabis industry involved, um, having them educate, having them politic, uh, having them lobby where they need to when these laws get enacted. And one thing, as you know, in the back of Hidden War on that 10th final chapter, I kind of go into regulate, regulation, what works and doesn't work and moving forward. Um, we had regulated in 2016. It was the first time we recreationally regulated cannabis in California. We tightened up the medicinal marijuana laws and everyone said, you guys will be out of a job. This high speed, low drag tactical unit is a waste of money and time. You guys aren't, you're going to be out of a job. And we knew they, we knew they were wrong. And sure enough, it wasn't that we regulated, it's how we regulated that made it fail. Um, watering down the cartel trespass grow uh, crimes to misdemeanors and infractions for juvenile cartel growers took everybody out of the game except us and the feds. Wow. And you can imagine how overwhelming that was. Uh, and then we see, you know, we look at the border policy now with the border policy completely watering back and border control is all but non-existent now. And you, and our mutual buddies and all the federal agents I work with and educate with, and where we have our thin green line film series focused on that Southern border, they're pulling their hair out. It's like we had an uphill battle holding back the tide when we had this wall being built, when we had legitimate border interdiction and when we were interdicting at least some of this stuff. And now, you know, the message of what's not working has never been more critical. So I feel very lucky to be, you know, past the operational stage, 
working with the guys on my old team still, training new teams and getting to see those guys and more importantly, tell their story because they are fighting an uphill battle in California, a 12-man unit with two great dogs. And it's kind of, you know, it's kind of them up against that, you know, that tidal wave. It's unbelievable. Every little bit of political adverse action they're having to face in California almost daily as they continue the fight. And it's not slowing down. Yeah, no, it's, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to see. And, uh, you know, most of the, obviously the, the state doesn't, uh, doesn't do the job that you're doing when you outline what's going on, you show the pictures like in these books, uh, and you talk about that, that impact in these novels and in these, in these books, sorry. Um, I mean, it's, it's, they're fantastic. I gave a, my daughter has both of these. She's expressed interest in, uh, in being a game warden one day. We we're talking about it oh, last man. night, actually. So, uh, I got her out hunting at a very early age, as you know, you know, got it first year together when she yeah. was seven. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just such a, a great thing to be able to do with kids and be able to, to put those devices down, those electronic devices down and get out in a tree stand together, get on a trail together, um, and just bond in a way that, uh, with no distractions. Um, and not just for the kids, for the adults too. put those, putting those phones down and getting out there. And it's nice to be able to go to a place and not have to be worried about stumbling onto a grow or not right. have to be worried about, uh, stumbling across a, uh, a family essentially of dead mountain lions or, you know, or something, something else that's caught in a, in a snare that's, that's gnawing its leg off to try to try to get out of there. Um, or seeing all these dead fish and plastic, just this coming down out yeah. of these streams and, and all the rest of it. Um, when you look at all that, the environmental impact of these illegal grows in particular, what is the most uh, devastating environmental part of those of those grows? Uh, is it those pesticides that that wash into the streams? Like what what is it that uh, if you're picking if you if you're picking one thing that you want people to be aware of that uh, that they might not be aware of because we're so distracted these days by so many different things out there? What is that? What is the most yeah. significant environmental impact of these grows? Yeah, the, the top one for sure, bud, is is definitely the EPA banned poisons. Um, trade names like Carbofuran, Furidan, Qfuran, Metafos. Got a bunch of like you know color pictures of them of what they oh, look like. It's incredible uh, that part right here, like that that part of your books. I was not aware of those all those different different poisons and why they crazy, were right. Uh, why they were illegal and how they get into this country and why they're used in the grows. Like I had no idea before I read your books um, about about those. But uh, I mean, it's it is so tough to read about that. Nobody. It hasn't. I mean, I've worked for Border Patrol. I mean, I've been I've been uh, in the backcountry for my whole life, and I didn't. You know, right. I knew there was pesticides, and I knew a little bit. You know, about something. I had no idea how horrible these things actually are for for the environment. Um, it, uh, it it's rough to read about that. That's worth it just to just to find out about that. Um, is worth it. And to pass these books along to people that have no clue about those, those sorts of things. I yeah. guarantee you, most people have no idea uh, what's coming across the border. They just think, oh, drugs. They don't, they have no idea that these pesticides are coming in uh, and why they're not allowed in this country and why they're not allowed to be used in agriculture in this country. Uh, but they're coming back in. And that's, uh, that might be a reason that we might want to strengthen up that, uh, that border just a tad. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I, uh, I appreciate you taking, taking that urgency and putting that message out and helping with that, you know, and when we were getting this book published and my publishing group is Caribou, you know, and they're basically the book side of Gun Digest and, you know, our brand is Recoil and Recoil TV and Recoil Off Grid. So you're coming from not only a 2A background for this message in this publication, I was really blessed to have this as a, as a publisher for the second book. Um, but you're getting a lot of conservationists, a lot of diehard lovers of wildlife that have been in the woods like you and I since they were able to walk. And when they got wind of this, they're like, what? Oh, heck no. That's not going to continue. We're going to, we got to get this message out and get it out as far and wide as we can. And the thing with those EPA banned poisons that sucks so much, Jack, is, you know, they put them on the plants. That's one thing. They put them on the flower and the bud material that people are ingesting unknowingly. Um, but it's also getting into the water, like you said, below every plant. Sometimes they're dumped right in the actual check dam in the stream, like mm -hmm. GI and I found. And then they're pumped into a drip system to hit all the plants. And they're just saving time from having to dump this on every plant. Um, it ends up in the soil. You know, so our canines with their paws are, you know, in, you know they're, they're basically susceptible to it. Um, this stuff is so toxic on this weed and in these grow sites that let's say a grower puts it on today and I raid that grow site tomorrow. All those plants are going to have kind of a white opaque sheen on them. And this is a good thing I talk about in the book with some pictures for people to realize if you do find a grow site anywhere in the woods in any state, and it's got, it looks like white bird 
droppings or liquid paper or some sort of misty like white spray paint, you've got probably a very toxic hazmat, you know, EPA banned chemical on it. If you just ingest those fumes, if you're downwind 50, 100, 200 yards, and it's just been applied and you bring those fumes in, you can have respiratory lockup. I mean, it's that bad. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, it's so bad that when we go into a grow site like that, even with nitro gloves, face protection, N95 masks, full decon kits, we cannot eradicate that grow for 14 days until it dissipates to a level that our hazmat equipment will allow us to take it out. And, you know, these grows are in 25 to 27 states outside of the Golden State, the true weed Mediterranean state of California. So I can't emphasize, like you're saying, that particular threat enough. I will say, you know, we talk about um, getting back to what you said about, uh, you know, your kids and conservation. One, absolutely honored that your daughter might be a future game warden. And, you know, it goes without saying we've got her covered every which way if she does choose that. But the whole next generation of the digital age and what so many kids I think are missing out on of what really inspired all of us that keep us going out there spiritually and driving us with the beauty of the outdoors, it's starting to come back. And I look at all the negativity we've had through COVID, through the politics of this last election, through the crazy stuff we're going on with other foreign entities that, you know, are real threats to us now. Um, The one positive, and I try to play to the positives, any negative situation through COVID was this mass increase in hunter education classes, outdoor adventure, the interest from, the, po- the political side of the non-outdoor user traditionally, not people that grew up like you and I did. We had a 30 plus percent increase in hunting license sales and hunter education certifications between March and May of last year in the wow. peak of COVID. And certainly a lot of that was people thinking, uh-oh, the supply chain's running out. I don't own a gun. I don't know how to hunt, but I live in Kentucky and I have deer in my backyard and what happens if I have to sustain for my family? I have no clue. I am, yeah. This has just not been in my my, my frame of reference growing up. And it was so neat throughout the, the, this last year. And I'm still seeing that, you know, that bleed off this year to have so many people that were so anti-gun and so anti-hunting to go, you know what? I just don't see it that way anymore. I see what good firearms training is about. I see what ownership of firearm is for everything from personal defense, tyranny to sustaining for my family, all of these things they're starting to see. And it, and they do not come from traditionally the same political background as maybe myself or you. Um, so we are seeing a shift. We are seeing people and correct me if I'm wrong, but I know you've talked about this as well. Um, and it's, it's something that I think we can really see something good in this country develop out all this madness. That's it. That's it. It's people realizing from last year, remembering back, like if they didn't feel as prepared as they could have been, uh, if that made them nervous from a financial foundation of months to, uh, to sustain themselves financially, uh, to food, to water, to water filtration system, to maybe, yep. uh, checking those fire extinguishers to a firearm, yeah. realizing yeah. that police aren't there as your protection right next to you, unless they are, uh, unless you're a mayor and they're, you're, and then you're paying for that, uh, <laughs> for someone to stand next to somebody else, to, uh, oftentimes trying to take away the means that you have to defend yourself. But, um, uh, then not just realizing that, uh, that you could have been more prepared, but taking action on some of those feelings like, oh, geez, you know what? I wish we had had uh, a week, two weeks, three weeks, whatever it is of food or one month, two months of some sort of a financial uh, foundation yeah. stash, whatever it, it might be. And then taking action on those things, putting them in place so that the next time something happens, you can solve that problem at hand. You can adapt to that particular problem, whether it's civil unrest, whether it's a, a natural disaster or whatever it might be pandemic, um, then you can focus your bandwidth on solving that problem instead of, oh, geez, I need to filter water. I don't have water filter. What am I going to going to do? Right. Or I turn on the faucet. There's nothing coming out. Uh, yeah. Now, what am I going to do? You know, those sorts of things. Take care of those base levels that you can take care of ahead of time. Uh, and a lot of that was that's why we're seeing that uh, seven, eight million dollar or eight, eight million new uh, background checks. Um, so right. I think I take I think I'm about half of those. So let's just say it's probably four <laughs> really um, across the country. But uh, yeah. but yeah, I mean, that's if it helps people become more prepared going forward, more self-reliant. Uh, more thoughtful citizens in how they go about their their daily lives and then what they pass on to their children. You know, we have to look at those, you know, look at the good good parts of, uh, of over the last year, of the lessons that it's taught us and then make better decisions going forward. That's called, that's called wisdom when you do that. Yeah. And, and, and hopefully, hopefully we're, we're, you know, capitalizing on that wisdom, but it, it has been one encouraging light to see through, through what we've experienced the last year and a half. And, uh, 
And yeah, I mean, the shortage of ammo, you know, that uh, keeps coming up and everybody buying their first weapon and then getting their one box of 50 rounds of pistol or one box of 20 rounds of rifle. And I can't tell you how many hundreds of people in the world of new to firearms are hitting me up with friends from high school all the way to new contacts and outreach. Like, dude, do you have any avenue on ammo? And (laughs) how do you get it? What do you do with it? And now I don't know what to do next. I mean, I got all the tools and I got no, you know, I got no software. I got no software. And when people ask uh, me for that, do you have any connections to get some ammo? Nope. Nope. (laughs) So that's, that's one of those things. Remember that and get it when you can. So you're ready next time. But, uh, you know, before I let you go, I want to talk to you about, uh, that right there, that blade. That a blade. Yeah. Yeah, So that's the same. Nice. I think I you like and I are it. rocking the thin green line, the black handle, a, a green runner, right? Of the trailblazer. That's it. That's oh, it. So man. I took, so, I, you get, you uh, sent me this last, uh, last spring sometime yeah. and I yeah. took it immediately on a, on a river trip uh, to, uh, in Idaho and it was awesome. But well, I love, I love this. This thing's solid. I love this thing. First off, I want you to talk about it. Uh, but my favorite part is that part right there. You can see right there. Cause sometimes they're too small. You know, when you're opening these things, this one, yep. and you really have to put that wrist into it to open these things. This one. Like that's just my, that's not, there's zero wrist in that yeah. one. And you know, and a lot of times you have to give it that for some of these knives, you really have to get into it. Yep. This one, not at all because of that design and that right there. Like, look at that. That was zero wrist right there. I didn't have to worry if that was going to open or yeah. not. So you did a great job uh, designing this thing. So um, before I let you go, can you talk a little bit about this? Absolutely, brother. I'm glad you're enjoying the blade. This is uh, this is my thin green line trailblazer signature blade from B knives. And you mentioned that that ball bearing on that hilt slash activator lever does both. That's all Mike Bellacamp. That's my buddy and you know CFO and founder of B knives. And that's his design that he actually did with Jerry Hossum, another uh, you know a culinary a Hall of Fame famer. We do his deplorable knife in our line. And by using a single ball bearing and balancing it just right and having enough of a neural there, you know enough. And we had to actually extend that about a 64th of an inch past the prototypes. We had a blade show last year. It didn't have quite enough bite, mm-hmm. but it just gives you that switchblade speed without any hard use. So if you got, you know, support hand, you're, you know, in a weird body position, you can flick it, deploy it. Uh, and it's basically the, the folding blade I wanted to carry all my career that I never had like a complete blade. Carried a lot of different blades like you have. You're a blade guy, man, diehard. And man, you've got some good designs too. <laughs> but just having the seatbelt cutter, the glass breaker, yep. uh, a drop point that you could actually skin and field dress, but you could also use for defensive battle if you needed to. Um, we offer serration, partially serrated, straight drop point, non-serrated, OD green handle for tactical guys. So we got four SKUs on it. And um, we sold out of our first thousand about two months ago. We're making another 1500 that should drop mid-June. Nice. Uh, they're going to be just the same knife, just, uh, you know, so anyone can get what they need. And we're going to have uh, two fixed blade trailblazer nice. thin green lines coming out. Yeah, awesome. full size and basically a very small, what we call the Delta backup named after my sniper unit. That's going to be so small, it'll be a good backup knife on an ankle, you know, on a, in a ballistic vest pouch for LEOs or military in their kit vests. Um, I think everyone's going to really like those at the price point and same D2 steel and, and quality that we're building, but I'm glad you like it. Yeah, man. No, it's awesome. It, man. I'm honored. Oh, awesome, man. No, thank you so much. I sincerely appreciate that. And, uh, and what's ahead for you? What's, uh, what's going on? Are you doing some more, some more shows, more filming? Are there more books? What's, uh, I know you're doing yeah. the off-road racing. You got the band, you're out in the woods. You're like, <laughs> you've got it all going on, man. What's, uh, what's, uh, what's at the top of your list going through, uh, as we move into the summer here? Yeah, summer's going to be, it's going to be a mix of desert racing. I'm part of the, uh, the Monster Energy Can-Am UTV Pro Team. Um, been really lucky to get back with them. You know, I used to race quads in Baja up until I started Met, basically. I was always a desert off-road racer. And one of the big challenges, um, Jeff, my partner and I, who I met that game warden with, we mentioned earlier in the broadcast, uh, he was my mentor growing up. He taught me to ride, amazing motorcycle rider. We'd be started a, uh, an Ironman Baja racing team where I would solo races on a quad. He would solo on a bike. We have orphanages, uh, one special orphanage, El Oasis, we support down there with some amazing kids. Yeah. Um, and after so- being the first to solo the Baja 500 on a four-wheeler successfully in 2013, I kind of gave up racing after that. Because you know from the standpoint when you were with the teams, once we got to the level of being able to build Met and having that honor, it was a 24-7 commitment and kind of hunting anything but bad guys went on hold for six years. And then when I retired, I never really thought I'd be racing again and then met some really cool sponsors of the Thin Green Line film series for, that I do for Recoil TV and Amazon and host and produce. 
Um, I met some very hardcore conservationists that happened to be iconic in the desert off-road racing world. Uh, Tim Orchard, who makes OMF Performance, Billet Aluminum Racing Wheels, the finest on the planet, uh, you know, and different guys connected to him and got roped into the monster team he's on. And uh, they very much see the benefit of the Thin Green Line message. Um, they want to see desert racers, you know, represented as proponents of that and not destroyers of land, you know, riding in proper OHV areas, being stewards of wildlife. They, uh, they have the same passion you and I do, and no one really saw that. So we're kind of taking a lot of fun of desert racing, but making a little bit of message in it of bringing them into the thin green line and showing that the thin green line is an exclusive military conservation officer. Everybody's part of it. Um, just like our mutual friend, Joe Rogan, who says I'm part of the thin green line now, you know, I never really looked at it that way as a conservationist and an archer and everything wildlife. So the racing is going to be an amazing year. Um, a lot of races, <laughs> a lot to learn navigating and driving and co-driving a side-by-side at, you know, uh, championship speeds compared to going out on a quad and, you know, trying to just finish uh, 18 hours on a machine to make the finish line. Um, Thin Green Line film series, we're going to do our second film. We do one a year. Uh, we did the first one on the unprotected border of Texas and Mexico, hunting uh, mature Audad rams, uh, talking about the ethics of long range hunting, like you and I discussed previously. And we happen to be on a 55,000 acre, super pristine ranch in Texas with all these amazing animals. And then having cartel interdiction and traffickers going right through the ranch while we were on the ranch and having wow. border patrol takedowns, you know, that were highlighted in the first film. Um, we're going to do another one down there. It's going to be an elk hunt. It is going to be in the Southwest again with that same group of outfitters that have seen the ramifications of cartel damage and threats firsthand. I'll leave it at that for now, but cool. um, we're going to be filming that in October. Um, that's going real good. And we are going to be doing a new, um, we have to do a second edition and we're going to add some content to the next version of hidden war coming up. Oh, nice. It's going to have some new chapters and some stuff I can discuss that I couldn't discuss before. And also it's going to go into the ramifications of COVID on the threat to the thin green line from cartel presence in the whole country, not just related to cannabis. So there'll be some more stuff there as well. Awesome. Awesome, man. If people can find you at John Norris, N-O-R-E-S. Correct. Yeah. N-O-R-E-S on the website, on Instagram and on my YouTube page, Jack, there's a lot of new content on that. Oh, nice. Not only the thin green line film, but a lot of investigative news related to what we talk about in hidden war. Um, the documentaries we did for NRA TV with American Zealot yeah. Productions with also Rick's great. team. Yeah, Rick's um, great. They're Rick's on there. there. Products are on there. We're, we're adding a lot, lot of stuff to the YouTube channel now and people are really eating it up. So if you want to check some of that stuff out, guys, I think you'll dig it. And uh, just want to say thanks for having me on and so good to see you again, man. Dude, you know, good to see you. Later. And we'll put all that stuff in the in the show notes. That's a lot to keep track of. You have a lot going on. So that'll all be there <laughs> in the in the show notes for everybody. And uh, yeah, man, thank you so much for sharing this message, for educating me, uh, my kids, uh, and by default, all those other people who you'll never probably hear from who you've impacted uh, through this message, whether it's the books or the films or social media presence or whatever it might be. So uh, thank you for being such a good steward of the environment and, uh, and, uh, and a role model for so many, so many people out there. So keep, uh, keep crushing, man. I'll be following along and hopefully we can get out a field together soon. Yeah, brother. I really appreciate, appreciate that. I appreciate all your support. And uh, I know with, um, with your new production, with the series with Chris Pratt, super excited. You got a whole Met team, a bunch of game wardens. Can't wait to see nice. that because, you know, you're, you're teamed up with a producer and an actor that's a diehard conservationist too, man. And what a privilege that is. So we're excited for you and all you got going. And somehow, some way in these busy schedules, we will connect, but awesome. keep up what you're doing. Super excited, super happy for you. And uh, we'll be pushing you right along. Welcome to the gear highlight section of the Danger Close podcast. And so this isn't really a review section. This is just a highlight section, just stuff that I like to use, things I've used in the past, things I'm looking forward to using in the future, that sort of thing. So uh, I know we talked a little bit about uh, this blade that John Norris designed. We talked about this on the podcast and that's made by V Knives and that's V-N-I-V-E-S. Um, and we talked a little bit about it, but you can see right there, there's a glass breaker on it right there. Uh, super easy to open. You don't need to really put any wrist into that at all. And then there's also, if you can see that right there, um, a little blade right there for cutting seatbelts and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, this thing's awesome. Love this blade. It is, and it's solid too. So, uh, check those out on his website, johnnorris.com. All right. What else do I have here? Since we were talking about hunting and conservation, that sort of thing, I figured 
I talk about something I'm asked about quite frequently, uh, which is kind of my go-to rifle. So uh, because I use a 300 Win Mag so much in the teams, I just know that round really well. And obviously it wasn't this exact rifle. Uh, this is a hunting rifle, a lot lighter, um, but I do love that 300 Win Mag round um, just because I have that I have a little soft spot in my heart for that round. So uh, this is the rifle though. I've been using this since, I think I got this in uh, 2012, I want to say, but somewhere around that time frame. But uh, it's a Rifle Zinc 300 Win Mag, uh, Remington 700 action and uh, titanium action. So the whole thing is super lightweight. Uh, Swarovski uh, 3-18 to Z6i uh, glass on top there. And then I like this cheek pad right here. A bunch of different companies make them. This one happens to be uh, Blackhawk, but it puts my cheek right at the right uh, level for the scope here. And then this is the 165 grain uh, Barnes right here. So this is just, uh, that's what this rifle likes. And uh, most all my rifles, they take, uh, I, I shoot a bunch of different ammo through them to find out what it really likes the best. And then that's the uh, the round that I use with it and build a range card, uh, dope card based on on that. So, uh, bam, Barnes 165 grain rifles, Inc, 300 Winchester Magnum. And then also around that same time, I also got these boots. These are the same ones. These are, uh, Schnee's and these are the granites. So these things are pretty serious as you can tell. So if, uh, if I'm going into the back country, if I'm going to be coming back out, hopefully with a little more weight than I went in with, um, these are the ones that, uh, that I most typically wear. So love these boots. These guys are in, uh, in Bozeman, Montana. You can find them there, find them at, uh, schnaze.com online. And, uh, yeah, I have, well, I have quite a few of their boots, but these are the ones that, uh, that I go to most often if I'm heading into the back country for an extended period of time with a lot of weight. Thank you for tuning into the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. So be sure and pick up John Norris's books, War in the Woods and Hidden War, available wherever books are sold. And you can find out more about John on his website, John Norris, N O R E S dot com. And be sure and pick yourself up one of these blades. More of them are coming back in June. So uh, if you like the podcast, be sure and leave that five star rating and review. And I'll see you next time on Danger Close. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, mm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What box you... do you fit in? Which exactly, box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy or <laughs> right. Right. An How, uh, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.